Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. We may do our very best to finish up the epistle to Titus tonight. We have been covering the pastoral epistles for the last three months or so, and we had to uh, hit pause. Last week was one of the few times we weren't able to finish a single chapter in one night, and we're going to try to finish up Titus 2 and 3. Chapter 3 is a much shorter, I guess relatively speaking, but let's review. Let's back up and review again. One of the things we have seen in these pastoral epistles is that they give us insight into what ministry looks like behind the scenes. There are what Southerners think preachers should be like. There are what Americans think preachers should be like. And then there's what God thinks a preacher should be like. And I'm not from this region originally at all. And nor was I trained to be a pastor, so I didn't even pay attention, never thought I'd be a pastor. So I didn't pay attention to the social norms, the so-called social contract and the expectation that was uh, placed upon the position I was stepping into when I took over our church. And even though we boasted ourselves kind of a Holy Ghost, Spirit-filled church, there were still expectations placed upon me I wasn't aware of, and I didn't fulfill any of them because I thought they were stupid. And they were stupid. And what I realize now, looking back 16 years later, is that it was a religious creation. It was a, it was a customary tr tradition. It wasn't a biblical expectation. And so what I was seeing in the Word I needed to do is not what some of those people wanted me to do. And that's why we have pastoral epistles in our Bible, so we can see what God says the preacher should do, not what Granny thinks the preacher should do. And we see what God's expectation is not what your expectation is. So hopefully over the last 13, 14, 15 chapters of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, you're beginning to see what, uh, what these expectations really, really are because they're really never what the South expects or even tradition expects. So the other thing we said, backing up, is that uh, the big crux of the epistle to Titus is adjusting the culture at Crete. Now, if you remember, Timothy is assigned in this time as a pastor to Ephesus, and then Titus is assigned as a pastor to Crete. Those are two different cities. Crete is an island nation. Ephesus is a city in what is now modern-day Turkey. Different cultures, different issues, different maturity level. A lot of Timothy's two epistles are spent encouraging him because even though it's a really posh church, with really good doctrine, a lot of etiquette. It's a good society. The boy is a bit of a mama's boy, and he's discouraged. And even though he's anointed to be a pastor, he needs a lot of encouragement. Titus, on the other hand, he just feels like a Navy SEAL who woke up on the bad side of a war, and he just don't care. And he doesn't get any encouragement his whole epistle. And he's also left at the worst place in the Roman Empire, as far as culture and history seems to reveal. We said that the Cretans were held in such bad reputation that even at this time, there was a Greek word that meant to Cretanize, and that meant you were lied to and cheated. We see that Paul references the quote from Epimenides in the 6th century BC that all Cretans are liars. That's a very famous quote from Greek philosophy. It sets forth a, log a logic argument, a logic um, conundrum for the philosophers. But if all Cretans are liars, 600, actually now 700 years later, the testimony is still true, which means Cretans haven't changed a bit. And interesting, the Holy Spirit sees fit to add two more testimonies to this island nation. They're not just liars. They're evil beasts and slow bellies. So the Holy Spirit now adds to their reputation. And then he says, and this witness is true, which means they are liars. They are evil beasts. They are slow bellies. And one of the translations we looked at last week that's a little offensive is it says that they're lazy fatties. And we, we had to kind of acknowledge that a lot of this reputation America shares. We also tactfully, we're going to tactfully, well, no, I take that back. Last week was not tactful. Last week was, was me juggling tomahawks and chainsaws. 
And I, I really, last week's sermon was pretty hot. I went back and listened to it because we didn't post it anywhere. We pulled it off the stream and then we haven't uh, put it on the podcast yet because I wanted to make sure it didn't sound too bad. I edited two things out. won't say what they were because I don't want to repeat them. But somebody said, Pastor, I didn't think they were hard at all. You actually just demonstrated what the epistle was doing. You were calling out wicked culture and calling it what it was. I thought, that is what I was doing. And so I don't aim to do that tonight, but we may push it a little bit. One of the things we said last week is, whatever culture you're from, are you discerning enough and unbiased enough to be able to list the top three sinful traits of the culture that raised you? If you can't see the top three sinful traits, or let's just say just three of what raised you, it's probably because you are biased in favor of what raised you, and you're going to have a problem being changed away from that. Now, that's called a cultural bias. And now in our modern era, anytime you want to attack a culture, you're going to be called a racist because cultures are typically tied to demographics. Right? And this is really the conflation of what is truly racism and what is culturalism, which is an old word that's fallen out of use, what is prejudice, what is bigotry. And I like to make the statement, when everything's racist like it is today, then really there's nothing racist. But I want you to see, by the definition of modern people, if calling out a culture's sin is racist, then God is an eternal racist. But we know that's not true. But the reason our modern culture calls everything racist is so that it doesn't have to take any responsibility for its own shortcomings. So here's the challenge again. Every one of you, and we're a very diverse church in the true sense of the word, have been raised by a culture, whether it's Yankee culture, Cuban culture, Puerto Rican culture. I was raised in the Pacific Northwest by way of the South. That culture, the Dakotas culture, African culture, Indian culture. We have a lot of people here. Monterey culture, Sparta culture. And you and I know Sparta's way different than Livingston. And both of those places are way different than Monterey. And Monterey now is what, 10 or 15% Guatemalan? So that's a totally different culture. And if you're Hispanic, you know Guatemalans are way different than Mexicans and Salvadorans and Hondurans and Panamanians. So can you, without biased eyes, judge how you were raised and tell me three three sinful traits that raised you? Because that's what God wants to do. Can you look at where you were raised, how you were raised, and see the three glaring things God's word hates. Now, we like to emphasize the good things, and that's great. But when we're looking at the epistle of Titus, and Paul is speaking to a pastor, Paul the apostle, and he's left his premier, toughest, gruffest minister on this island, he and I, they both know what the problem is, and that's the Cretan culture. The Ephesian culture is not touched because it really isn't an issue for where they're at and what the ministry is doing. But the whole nexus of this epistle revolves around the Cretan culture. And if that culture doesn't get changed, the gospel is ineffective there, and it's all for naught. Now, this I'm going to jump ahead in my notes, but let me show you how important this is. In these three chapters, they're all about 15, 16 verses long. So what is that, about 48 verses. In these 48 verses... Jesus is only mentioned four times. There's very little to any soteriology. That means salvation doctrine in this epistle. There's little to no Christology. That is the doctrine of Jesus. There's no pneumatology. There's like no mention of the Holy Spirit, really. Because the emphasis of this pastor-to-pastor conversation is you've got to fix those people. Those people are messed up. That island is messed up. That culture mocks God. And I left you there to fix it. You don't have to teach an anointed called preacher about Christ. He's born again. He doesn't need exhortation on that. He doesn't need that doctrine fed. But it also shows you pastors are to do a lot more than just teach on salvation every Sunday. If you're in a church that only teaches salvation every Sunday, you're not going to grow in Christ. 
And honestly, even the assignment to Titus is not about teaching Christ to them over and over and over again. Over the course of this, uh, we said 48, 49 verses, there are 55 characteristics preached that need to be in the people on that island. This is an epistle of nothing but lists. This is what the elders need to look like. And this is what the old men need to look like. And this is what the old women need to look like. And they need to teach the young women to look like this. And they need to teach the young men to look like this. And then Titus, you be an example of this. And the slaves need to be like this. And our people should be like this. That's the heart of this whole epistle. It isn't getting saved every Sunday. It isn't running and dancing in circles like a Pentecostal nut every service. God is looking at this island nation and he's got both barrels pointed on it. And he says, be better. The whole of the Greek empire can't stand you. When they make a word out of your ethnic group, you have a horrible reputation. Well, that's stereotyping. All stereotypes are built on truth. They didn't ever make a movie that said black man can't jump. (laughs) They made a movie called white men can't jump. They've never made a movie that said Asians can't do math. (laughs) Or Indians can't win the national spelling bee. Stereotypes are built on truth. And if you don't like your culture stereotype, don't live it. It's pretty simple. I am a preacher. I know our stereotype. Fat, soft, and dumpy. I reject every bit of it. I reject my southern draw. I reject all the sissy fat Jesus. I don't want the pot belly with the grease stains and the tie that's too short. I reject all of it. I endeavor to be a biblical pastor, not a southern one. I refuse. I have to be a pastor, but I don't have to be a stereotypical one. And you have to be where you're from, but you don't have to be where you're from unless it's an idol to you. And you've been taught by a demon to have your identity in that hood or that trailer park or that borough and not in Christ. Pretty good preaching. All right. This epistle is an assault on Cretanism. And he says, this testimony is true, so the answer is rebuke them sharply. Can you imagine? We have no idea where Titus is from, but it ain't Crete. And he comes into Crete saying, y'all are messed up. And God has sent me to fix you. You don't think that's considered a microaggression? I want you to know if you're going to walk with Jesus, he's going to accomplish macroaggressions in your life. So get some thick skin and be ready to be changed and conform into the image of a Jew from Nazareth and not wherever you take your pride from. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. My life is not my own. All those things I counted for gain are but dung that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might be made conformable to his death. You can just still keep bragging on your last name rather than saying, "I, I take no pride, but in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is a true testimony, he said, so rebuke them sharply. Chapter 2 then sets into all this teaching of sound doctrine. The answer to this corrupt culture is to teach sound doctrine. And doctrine isn't just what you believe. Doctrine's how you live. So you can tell you got better doctrine when it changes how you live. Sound doctrine produces biblical character in so many categories. It says old men first, then young men, then Uh, excuse me, old men, then old women, then young women, then young men. Prior to that, we had elders and bishops. Their lifestyles had to be changed. And then chapter two begins to wrap up by talking about we need slaves to live differently. Titus is not an epistle with much Christology, soteriology, and pneumatology. It's a pastoral epistle whose focus is on developing Christian character, not teaching a proven minister about more salvation. The emphasis is how are we going to make a difference? How are we going to pull these people up out of their slum? And as I mentioned previously, Titus only mentions the name of Jesus four times. 
Philemon or Philemon, depending on how you want to pronounce it, is one chapter long. It mentions Jesus seven times. And then on top of that, what we would call doctrinal statements, there's only three of them. Chapter 1 talks about eternal life in one verse. Chapter 2 talks about the blessed hope and the second coming in one verse. And then chapter 3 begins to talk about being saved and the washing of regeneration. It has a longer discourse on soteriology or what we'd say is a doctrinal statement. But even that little passage in chapter 3 is only three verses long and it's becoming the wrap-up of the whole epistle. So there's not a lot of doctrine here because you don't need to give a proven minister a doctrine. You need to give him the marching assignment. You know, Pastor Caleb and Miss Tiffany come to our Wednesday night services. They pastor down in Sparta. When he and I meet, we don't talk doctrine. We talk about what we're going to fix. How do we need to fix it? What's going on down there? How do we adjust that? How do we win that? How do we hold? We don't talk doctrine. He doesn't need that from me. He needs marching orders. He needs wisdom. He needs oversight. If, if I've got to teach him how to teach a lesson, I got the wrong guy in the office. <laughs> Amen. Chapter 3. Talks, has this little brief backup. Titus epistle teaches a local pastor what successful pastoring looks like. This epistle is all about what success in ministry looks like. And numbers are not mentioned anywhere. Building size is not mentioned anywhere. This is the blueprint for the preacher. These epistles are included so that if you'll slow down and read them, you'll know exactly what the pastor's job is supposed to be. The pastor's job is not to make the church as big, the biggest one the region has ever seen. It's not to have the most entertainment or the best smoke machines. It's to make sure every believer has proven Christian character working in their lives so they no longer look like where they came from. Amen. And not everybody wants that. Successful pastoring looks like developed character in former pagans so that the local church becomes an island of holiness in the midst of a sea of perversion. Now, when the local church becomes an island of holiness in a sea of perversion, that's successful pastoring, whether it's five people or 5,000 people. But when the church is an island of pygmies and pagans and perverts and the sea is full of perversion and wickedness, the pastor is a failure, no matter how many pygmy pagans he has on his little island. We don't care how big the church is. We care the quality of the sheep. And I've learned that the, the measure of my success as a minister is what's the strength of my average sheep? What's the testimony of the average church member here? That's a reflection of my ability to lead this ministry. And if my average minister or average, the average person in this ministry smokes dope, looks at porn, and sleeps around, I'm a failure. If the average person in this church is clean, holy, attends church, tithes, serves in a department, and could read, lead a Bible study somewhere, I think that's a pretty good success. They'll be hotter than that, and they'll be cooler than that. But if the average believer in a church is clean, knows how to repent, leads their spouse or submits to their husband, tithes, shares their faith, serves in a department, that's a pretty good Christian right there. So let me give you, don't write them down. I'm going to read you the 49 characteristics that have covered the first two chapters. Did you stop to realize there's that many lists in the first two chapters? So here's what Paul says your work should look like there in Crete. You should produce this in your people. Blameless, monogamous, clean kids, faithful to God, faithful stewards, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, not striker, not given to filthy lucre, lover of hospitality, lover of good, self-controlled, just, holy, disciplined, hold fast, sound doctrine, able to convince and exhort, self-controlled, grave, disciplined, sound in the faith, sound in the love, sound in patience, holy behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, instruct young women, self-controlled, pure, uh, love, husband, uh, love husband, love children, discipline, keepers at home, kind, submitted, self-controlled, pattern of good works, incorrupt doctrine, gravity, sincerity, sound speech, obedient to masters, pleasing, not talking back, not pilfering, showing good fidelity, and making the teaching of our God and Savior attractive to everyone. That's the bulk of the first two chapters. That's what ministry is all about. Not running and dancing, which I love a good Pentecostal hoedown, but we had those in the 90s, and where are those people today? One of our best dancers, and by that I mean Holy Ghost dancers, would come down 
to the altar and dance when this was when I was in college, but everybody between his seat and the altar ended up smelling like his cigarettes. For all his Holy Ghost dancing, he still smelled like he slept in an ashtray because he smoked so much. Now, again, if you struggle with cigarettes, no condemnation, get the victory over it. But for all that Pentecostal dancing we used to do, I don't know how much it delivered people. And this, that's a, that's a massive list. That's 49 characteristic traits. Self-control is mentioned seven times in there. Did you notice that? Self-controlled and discipline go back and forth seven times. That's three times more than Jesus has mentioned. There was no dancing required on Crete. No laying on of hands required on Crete. Just the work of a pastor pulling the slack out of a bunch of pagans who just converted to Christ. And this should be the fruit of the pastor's work and the discipleship and the elder's work. This is what it should look like. 49 characteristics. That sounds legalistic. Well, if you need a punch list, you need a punch list. <laughs> did, did you know that well, you probably didn't if you're from Middle Tennessee. Did you know that sentence structure is legalistic? Did you know there's words to grammar and that's a little legalistic? And if you get it wrong, you're like looking at your three-year-old going, you don't make any sense. I don't know what you're even saying. So to even walk and function in our society, you have to be a little legalistic because you have to accomplish stuff with rules. 49 character traits total beginning with the bishop elder in a local church all the way down to the slave. Seven times self-control is mentioned, three more times in Jesus. Six times good works are mentioned. And, it's and it says that we maintain good works. And because we start with the elders and bishops in chapter 1, and then we conclude with the slaves in chapter 2, uh, verses 9, 10, 9 and 10, that's why verse 11, and this is where we want to pick up, Verse 11 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, from the bishop all the way down to the slave. Now, I want to read this passage from here on for a few verses in the NIV. So if we can have the NIV ready on the overhead here. I want to read these passages uh, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Verse 12, it teaches us to say no. Now pause. The grace of God teaches. Now here's something important about the doctrine of grace. Depending on your doctrinal disposition or maybe your denomination, if we're not careful, we have a very one-dimensional understanding of grace. To the Calvinist, grace is only saving grace. To the hyper-grace heretic, grace is what makes you sin and not have to ever repent. We reject that. To someone who's given to the grace gifts of Romans chapter 12, graces are abilities God gives you to serve. Paul said, I say through the grace given unto me. The point is there's a lot of different facets to grace. Here's another facet. There is a saving grace. The life that I live now by the faith of the Son of God, uh, uh, and I do not frustrate the grace of God. There's another facet we can frustrate the grace of God. But this facet of grace says this grace that has appeared to bring salvation, it doesn't just bring salvation. It also teaches us. It instructs us. It instructs us to deny or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. There's self-control again. Here's the sub-theme of Titus. Get a hold of your life. Get a hold of your mind. Get a hold of your appetites. Why is that so heavily emphasized to the church at Crete? Because that's their sin. They're liars. They're lazy gluttons. And they're evil beasts. And self-control fixes almost all of that. Any culture that cannot judge itself and recognize where you're killing yourself is a culture that will peter out very quickly. And any pastor who does not have the audacity or the boldness to stand amongst his culture and call it sin what it is, is not doing his people a service. 
And honestly, as diverse as America has become, it's getting harder and harder for the preachers to tell their people the truth because they'll be labeled a racist. Amen. Even I feel the pressure not to go out and just start calling a spade a spade, even right now, because I know all the stereotypes in our nation. And I'll be labeled a racist for saying, how come this demographic sins this way? And how come this demographic sins it? Well, you're being racist. No, I said a demographic, not a race, because where those people come from originally don't do that. That's something your people here did. Well, you're being divisive. No, your sin divides you. What about your people? I bash white folks all day long. And I bash charismatics all day long. And I bash preachers all day long. And I bash husbands all day. That's all my demographics. Whites, preachers, charismatics, fathers, men. Yeah. I put myself downrange. And then I line all of you up behind me. And then I shoot through all of us. And when you're easily offended and a coward and you have an idol in your heart called where you come from, you can't handle it. And it breaks you and, oh, it hurts. Grow up. We're dabbling with eternity here, not your little petty feelings. That's one of our sickening cultures in this nation. Oh, it hurts. Oh, owie. Well, get some thicker skin. Dr. Barclay says, have thick skin and a tender heart. You have thin skin and a hard heart. So reverse that, and you can handle truth really well. It's exhausting to have to tiptoe with adults and handle them with Mickey Mouse gloves. It's just so exhausting. Those people don't end up finishing their race. And the Lord will say, well, what would you do with them? I said, the best I could. And that's maybe why they're still in kindergarten, even though they died at 90. They're always looking to be offended at something. Please see, you could insert anything here in verse, back chapter 1, verse 12. The Cretans, the whites, the blacks, the Hispanics, the Africans, the Europeans, the Latinos, the Indians, and there would be something to line up and knock down. You and I don't have permission from God to defend the sins of our forefathers or the sins of our mama, or the sins of our hood, or the sins of the ghetto, or the sins of the trailer park, or the sins of the holler, or the sins of the bush hut. We don't have permission to defend it. We have permission to march on towards Christ and come out from among them and be better than where we were given birth to. All right. The grace of our God that brings salvation has appeared and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. Now, the blessed hope is the resurrection of the dead. It's the second appearing of Christ. So between the salvation that's appeared to us in verse 11 and the blessed hope of verse 13, grace is here. Not your aunt Nana or your aunt Mama Grace. No, grace is here teaching us how to live between being born again and the blessed hope. So you have the beginning, you have the ultimate end, and in between, grace is teaching us. Now, what is so fun is that word teach there is insulting. And of course, it's a Greek word that we don't get, but that's why you have a pastor who has access to all sorts of tools and knows how to use them. So let me tell you what this word is, because it's both insulting but also encouraging. Now, before I tell you what the word is, let me tell you how Pastor Vaughn used to preach it by the Holy Ghost because I know he didn't know this word. He would say, quit complaining about how you were raised. He said, you've been born again. Get a new raising. That's how he'd say it. Quit complaining about how you've been raised. You've been born again now. You got a new raising. This word says the same thing. So let me give it to you here. This is the word pedoyusa. And we can see the word peda or child. That's where we get the word pedophile, pedophilia, pedagogas, pedoyusa. This means the upbringing, instructing of children, which included chastisement and physical punishment. The aim was to develop general knowledge, character, 
and discipline. So we just translate it as teaching. Another translation says instructing. One translation will say correcting us. But the whole term is, this is how you raise little children. So think about that. We get born again. And if we're born again, we're babes in Christ. And now the Holy Ghost, through the grace of God, the spirit of grace, begins to instruct us anew and give us a new raising. And the sole purpose of that is instructing us in character and in discipline, giving us a new raising away from whatever we were born to previously, good, bad, or ugly. Now, that's why it's insulting, because you can be 60 years old, get born again, and the Holy Ghost is going to begin again with you like a child. There's other words for instruction that are more meaty and more military and more gruff. This is the one that's like, come here now, bud, bud, sit on my lap. Let's talk about this again. Why don't we throw bricks? Because they can hurt people. Well, thankfully, we've never had that discussion with our son, but he's a boy, so you know anything is possible. <laughs> the choice of this word, the developmental instructing and chastening of a child, is intended to communicate our need for a new and better upbringing. That means God is not pleased with where we come from. Now, again, there are good things we've been given, but they only got us to today. Your parents kept you alive. That's a plus. <laughs> they fed you. That's a plus. You're literate, I assume, although it's the upper Cumberland. It's a crapshoot sometimes. I'm not. Well, Pastor Vaughn was illiterate when he went to Bible school. He, he could not read or write. That means he went through Cookful elementary, middle, and high school, graduated Cookville High School, couldn't read or write. Old-timers remember his stories about that. Had to learn by the Holy Ghost at Ramah how to read and write. So again, I do make fun of us, but it's because we're Cretans. There's a different Cretan. Actually, if you want to know what a... Our term Cretan, C-R-E-T-I-N, is a birth-defected dwarf from the Swiss Alps that suffered the disease of cretinism. So you just laughed at deformed dwarfs. You're racist. You got to know I looked up all these words and studied it to the nth degree on etymology website. So yeah, so when we say you cretin, what we're talking about is you have a birth defect, a little midget. Cretinism is, a, is an abnormality, but it isn't just in dwarfs. But they're from the Swiss Alps, apparently. So like midget I had a Santa Claus flash there, Swiss Alps. <laughs> now you're an ableist, Pastor. I'm whatever you need me to be so you don't have to change. I will be that all day long for you, and you can stay the same. But the Holy Ghost teaches us, I'm going to go back to our definition, the upbringing and instructing of children, which included chastisement and physical punishment. So there's correction in this. There is rebuke in this. There's punishment in this. The grace of God instructs us and rebukes us to say no to sin and ungodliness, to live self-controlled. The aim was to develop general knowledge, character, and discipline. This word means it raised children to be disciplined. No, you don't need that candy. No, you don't need to watch any more TV. No, you don't need that extra helping. No, you don't need to watch, play more Nintendo or Xbox. No, you've done enough Minecraft for tonight. No. See, children have to be taught how to be disciplined. If not, they'll destroy themselves. That's why God saw fit to give them an adult to call mom or dad. The choice of this word that is the developmental instructing and chastening of a child is intended to communicate our need for a new and better upbringing, a retaining and a, uh, excuse me, a retraining and reculturing, reculturing in accordance with Christ. So the word is a very rich word that we just read through. Oh, the Holy Spirit's going to teach us. Well, obviously he's not because you're the same. Obviously I, he's not because I'm the same. But grace, grace makes you disciplined. Well, the heretics out of Malaysia say grace makes you the same. This verse says grace wants to make you different, even different from how you were raised. Better different. Better different. More disciplined different. More loving different. 
more joyful, different, more free, different, more intelligent, different, more organized, different. You don't have to say, well, you know, we're just Irish and this Irish, you know, we all struggle with drinking. No, you drink because you're a drunk. Quit blaming redheaded people on that. Well, you know, we're Italian. Yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean? You love pizza? That's racist. No, I'm from Europe. I'm not. I'm from Pittsburgh by way of my mama happened to be pregnant and gave birth while they lived there, unfortunately. I could have been born anywhere. I hate, I hate the cultural pride Christians rest upon in idolatry when Christ is calling them to something better. Amen. Defending the sins of your culture is abominable. And we have a whole epistle dedicated to three things are wrong with Crete. And here are 55 things to make it better. And those three wicked testimonies changed and affected everybody differently. So here's 55 metrics to fix the people there. And those who can recognize the corruption will adjust it and fix it. Those who defend the corruption, you're going to doom your family and your kids to repeat the culture that is the bigger problem than the colonialist ever was. I have a friend, Dr. Lonnie Brown, up in Flint, Michigan. He's an African-American. His mantra in his church is, the problem is not the white man, it's the black mind. Now, you think you're African-American, you're in Flint, Michigan, you're dealing with a lot of issues. Needless to say, he's rejected by most black pastors in that town because he preaches biblical Christianity. And he tells his people, the white man's not our problem. Our problem's in between our ears, which is the same thing we tell poor white folk, missing teeth and back in possum holler. The problem's in between your ears. And if you can renew your mind, you can be a better human being. And if you're born again, you better renew your mind because God's going to judge you for how stupid you make heaven. <laughs> the choice of this word, the developmental instructing and chastening of a child is intended to communicate to us our need for a new and better upbringing, a retraining and a reculturing in accordance with Christ. So let's finish 12 here. Teaching us that, I'm going to go NIV. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. What ungodliness define your culture? The culture of your upbringing. The culture of your last name. Well, all of us McMichaels, we're just lazy drunks. Well, fix it. All of us McMichaels, you know, we just procrastinate. Fix it. And don't wait till tomorrow. All of us McMichaels, you know, we just, we struggle with porn. You don't have to. Well, you know, all of us McMichaels, we end up in jail. Well, don't. Just don't. It's simple. Just change your training by the grace of God. We have to really understand what this grace is. Uh, I was visiting with a preacher friend of mine a couple weeks ago. He actually came by the church. He, he no longer pastors. He's a great guy, great brother. He's a little bit older than me. And we were talking about the last days and the great falling away. And he has a tender heart. It's honestly too tender to be a pastor, which is probably why he doesn't pastor anymore. But I was teaching him some stuff. And anytime we're around, he likes to pull on me and he asks me questions. And I shoot him straight. And his reply is always this. But brother, where's the grace? But where's grace? Where's grace? Uh, which one? The one that's down at the buffet? Like, what grace are you talking about? Because what I'm talking about is the grace of God. Where's grace? Like grace is supposed to be some kind of get out of hell free card where you don't have to do anything once you're saved. Right here it says, where's grace? Grace is there telling you, quit being a pervert. Quit being lazy. Quit being fat. Quit being a drunk. Quit being poor. Quit being ignorant. Quit wasting time when you don't have it to waste. Quit making excuses. That's what, where's, the, where's grace? In your life, retraining you. And if you don't want grace in your life, well, then you can live like the culture you came from and take on some new flavors from the culture you're in. Grace says no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled. Grace will help you live self-controlled. Maybe we should change the Baptist hymn for oh for grace to live self-controlled. 
Oh, for grace at the donut shop. Oh, for grace at the buffet. Oh, for grace at 1030 at night. Oh, for grace when I get the paycheck. Oh, for grace when I get a bonus. Oh, for grace. Oh, for grace to be self-controlled. Oh, for grace when I'm angry and irritated. Oh, for grace. It'll change you. And to live upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the great the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people. Purify for himself a people. He wants to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Can you judge your culture to see where it doesn't do what is good? Can you, can you judge the people you come from? Can you recognize where what they're doing is not good? Because when you get the kingdom's culture coursing through your veins, you'll begin to do what is good. But the question is, do you even know what that is? Are you still just defending on what the wickedness is that your people do? And I know we say your people are people, but you got to make sure your people are God's people. I, I, did, I had a minority 10 years ago come to a Sunday morning. I said something they didn't like. So they came down here and got in my face and right about here, put a finger in my face and said, you know what, pastor, you just need to make sure your people do this. And I knew what she meant because she's a racist bigot. I said, what do you mean by my people? Because I'm born again, ma'am, which means my people are born again ones. Everybody else is going to hell, red, yellow, black, or white. So I don't know what you mean by my people because my people are born again ones. And if it's my people versus your people, you're saying you're hellbound. Would you like to be some of my people? Of course she didn't because she doesn't like white people because she's a racist bigot. So she kind of rustled her little feathers and walked off. Honestly, the nerve of somebody, if you don't like what I'm saying, just leave. To wait till I'm done, then to come down here and rebuke me in my pulpit, in my altar, you have no respect, not even for yourself. You're a miserable human being. And I feel sorry for you. Yeah, I'm going to rebuke the preacher in his pulpit. At least go away and pray for me and consider maybe your people aren't the right people anymore. Verse 15. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. So what I want us to see the pastor's not commissioned to just hug everybody and give a shake and a wink on Sunday morning. Glad you're here. God bless you. Good to see you, brother. How's Aunt Martha? Good to see you. God bless you. Good to see you. Yeah, yeah, I don't do that. I don't stand at the back door. Never done it. Never going to do it. When I don't want to talk to you guys, I say, look, I got to be somewhere in five minutes. Love you. See you later. Don't talk to me. And I go out that door because then you guys know your sheep, you know, you do your sheep thing any other time you want. You know, we build up static electricity, rub on me really good. When one of you's not looking, we touch the wet nose. <laughs> Encourage and rebuke with all authority and let the sheep walk all over you. Do not let anyone despise you. How can you talk to visitors like that? Because I know my commission. I know my commission. She doesn't respect anybody. She's going to reap what she sows. You should walk in love. I did. I told her truth. Apparently, she'd never heard any from anybody before. Not even her husband, but he was a racist bigot too. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind the people, we're going to stay with NIV, might as well. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. Here's more lists and more requirements of mature saints. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, not to protest and burn down cities. To be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, and to be peaceable and considerate, and to always be gentle toward everyone. These are good characteristics. They're not Cretan characteristics yet, but they were going to be, because this is what the fruit of the Holy Spirit does in people's lives. So I made a list of these six characteristics. Subject to principalities, that means obey leaders. Subject to powers, that means obey magistrates. Speak evil of no one, that's the Greek word blaspheme. Don't blaspheme anybody. Be not brawlers. That's actually where we get the word macho from. A macho. That comes from the Greek into the Latin macho. 
And of course, we get it from Spanish too. So don't be macho. I'm thinking of a village people song. <laughs> you apparently are thinking of it too. I'm not sure there was anything macho about the village people. This is the word basically don't be macho. Don't pick fights. Be gentle. That's our word epiekes, which we have a whole lesson on because it's the hardest word in the Greek New Testament to translate. That's to be gentle. To be meek. This word be meek, uh, that's in the King James. It doesn't come out here in the NIV, but to be meek. This is a word that means self-controlled temper, uh, to have a self-controlled temper and to always be able to bear up other people's wrongs. If you have a short fuse, you violate that and you need to work on it. That brings our list to a total of 55 characteristics given to the believers at Crete to make them totally different from their national pride. To make them totally different from how they were raised. To break them away from 700 years of national identity. I identify with Christ. I really care nothing about the USA. Now I do. Actually... One of my friends hears my preaching a lot, and he hears me preach against the U.S. a lot. We were somewhere, and he said, we, we did the Pledge of Allegiance, and he said, I looked at you to see if you were even going to put your hand over your heart. It almost hurt me a little bit, but I guess my preaching comes out a little heavy against my own nation sometimes. So you can call me prejudiced or racist, but you have to admit, I nail everything. If this guy, he's a white guy, so of course he doesn't hear anything else, and he's an American, He's concerned that I don't even want to put my hand over my heart to pledge allegiance to the flag. I do. And I weep at Marine Corps commercials. And I wept at the National Museum when I saw the old glory. And I see our nation's capital. And I see great things. I weep over our nation. And then I weep over our nation. Paul wants us to be different than the culture we were raised in. We should say Paul by the Holy Ghost. At one time, we too were foolish. So now Paul brings it back to us. After all this that we bashed on the Cretans, he says, now here's the mercy. We can all relate. We were once just as wicked. We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, just like the Cretans. So here's where he says we can help them because we've been there too. Even Paul, a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he can relate. That's why we can have compassion. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. What a miserable way to live. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteousness or righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewing, renewal by the Holy Spirit. Here's one of our only little chunks of soteriology two or three little verses here that briefly reminds Titus of how the salvation process works. We were born again once, and then we're renewed regularly by the washing of the water of the word. A little bit of insight into soteriology there. Verse 6, by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank God the Holy Ghost is generously poured out. He is the Spirit of grace. And if it's a generous outpouring, we ought to have a lot of growth. Now, let me pause because we're going to wrap this thing up. We've got about seven verses, a few things to stop and say. One of the things I've harped on now for all these years is, how is it we are born again? How is it we have the Holy Ghost? How is it we're tongue talkers? How is it we have a Bible? How is it we have church two, three, four times a week? How is it all of this is working in our advantage and we're the same? How is it we short circuit this grace? How, where do we plateau at? How, like Paul said to the Galatians, we did run well. We were on an upward trajectory. And then we, what, what made the decision? Why did we decide to say, ah, that's enough. Says who? That's enough, God. That's enough holiness. That's enough discipline. That's enough joy. That's enough victory. That's enough mental stability. Says who? That's enough submission. Says who? That's enough submission. Says who? The Bible, it just said, submit to authority, submit to rulers. Says who? We've not obtained yet, so we keep advancing. 
verse 8, uh, verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Verse 7, really, it, it gives us past, present, and future. We were justified. We are becoming heirs, and one day there will be a hope of eternal life. Past, we're justified. Present, we're heirs, and one day of a, a hope of eternal life. That's future tense. So in that verse, you see all three stages of salvation, past justification, present sanctification, future glorification, and that's pretty cool to see all that in one verse. Verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is, this is a faithful saying. Everything he set up until this point, faithful saying, do it, faithful saying, do it. We, we see seven, eight, nine times this epistle says self-control. Self-control is mentioned more than Jesus is in this epistle. The inference, the emphasis of this epistle is that island is a mess. It does what it wants, when it wants, as it wants. The word for victory is self-control, self-control, self-control. That means time control. That means money control. That means food control. That means spending control, appetite control, emotional control. We, we we're called by the Holy Ghost to restrain everything. You restrain whatever's ruining your life. If you don't, it continues to ruin your life. And it only gets harder the older you get. You have to do it. Well, there's no time like the present. Let's repeat this again, though we all know it. If you don't control your money, you don't have any. If you don't control your time, you don't have any. If you don't control your health, you don't have any. If you don't control your kids, you don't have any. If you don't control your emotions, well, here's where it changes up. You have all of them all at once like a freight train. <laughs> if you don't control your thoughts, you have all of them all at once and you can't control them. <laughs> Verse 9, Paul jumps back to the beginning of the epistle where he was concerned about the Judaizers those aren't those that are strictly under the law of Moses. These are those that are living under the Talmud who have all sorts of foolish genealogies and controversies. Verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Quarrels about the law, that goes back to the Talmud. There was no quarrel with the law of Moses. The quarrels with all what are called the Holocaust, the new laws added by the rabbis, to act as gatekeepers to the Torah. There's lots of questions, and they were debating endlessly. These are unprofitable and useless. Verse 10, warn a divisive person. Now, King James says heretic, but his use of heretic and our use of heretic are very different. We build our understanding of heretic on the word, but the word in the first century Greek, which is our cognate, is not what it means today. That's why the NIV says, warn a, diversive, a, a divisive person. The, a divisive, this in the first century, this is the Greek word heretikon, and it means to take a legitimate doctrine to the extreme and thereby become divisive. To take a legitimate doctrine to the extreme. We can do that with tongues. We can do it with healing. Years ago, I was a guest at a, at a church for a men's conference or a men's meeting, and I taught on honor. And afterwards, you could see him coming. In this church, apparently, they didn't have trouble with weird women. They had trouble with weird men. And here he is, you know, you can see his eyes are bumping together because he's on the Internet too much, and he thinks he knows more than his pastor, and I'm the guest, so he's got he's to adjust me. Though I was the one invited. And he, he says, it's a really good message on honor, young man. He's older than me. Yes, sir. You know the best way to honor God? I said, I'd love to hear a new way. He said, the creation account. Oh, God, here we go. That's great. First three chapters of the Bible. So 60 verses, maybe 70. So for the other 31,000 verses, 
Do I believe in creation? Absolutely. Do I believe in the six literal days, 24-hour days of creation? Absolutely. Do I believe it needs to be part of every message of every sermon ever taught? Never. But that's a legitimate doctrine obsessing in a man's heart, making an idol so that if he's going to come and correct the guest and not just say, that's great. You really helped me learn how to honor my pastor. You want me to, you're going to turn it now and you want to make it all about the creation account and 6,000 literal days. And if you don't believe in 6,000 literal days, you're a real heretic. You're obsessive. You're divisive. Because if I let you hold a Bible study, I know exactly what it's going to be about every time I let you do one. Genesis chapter one, two, and three. And there's a lot more to this kingdom than Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. That's an example of a first century heretic. Taking a legitimate doctrine to the extreme, it did later become synonymous with false doctrines. But the issue with the hereticon is that because it's one doctrine taken to an extreme, it produces arguments. Now with that man, I didn't argue with him because I knew exactly who he was feeding on, what he was listening to, and what magazine he was getting every month. I nailed it. I knew exactly what flavor he was of in the first minute of that conversation. I'm not going to argue with him. Paul told Titus, the pastor, you don't argue, you rebuke the first time. Let's go back to the verse. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. So, to stretch for you mentally, Titus, hardcore Crete, if this guy, example, you know, hardcore consumed of 6,000 years of creation, and I don't care how long it took to create it, we're here, so obviously it happened. <laughs> we cast out devils, so they're real. We see the sick healed, so that's real. And I got saved at seven. I know that's really real. So other than that, I don't really care, which is heresy to some people. But then again, all they want to do I was going to say dig in the rocks, but I'm a geologist by training, and that paid my bills for a long time. So this guy, according to Titus's command, I'd rebuke him twice and kick him out of my church. And that's called church discipline, but nobody practices it anymore because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But that's what it says, a divisive person. Now, okay, so now that we have this war in Israel right now, uh, this is the time where all the end time people get really excited because it's their time to shine. And now we have all the questions about blood moons again. Is this it? Is the blood moons? And when people want to emphasize nothing but blood moons and red moons, and we just had like a halo moon a couple weeks ago on a Saturday. Nobody said anything about that. And that happened right before Israel got attacked. Where are all the prophets? Oh, except that you can only see that going from Portland down to Texas. I mean, come on. It's exhausting. Why can't we just stick with the Bible, the whole counsel of God's word? Stay maybe for once in an epistle written to the New Testament and learn where you're weird. <laughs> Warn a divisive person, hereticos. And it doesn't have to be that. You could be divisive over something in the children's department. If you can't just get over it, if we can't resolve it, I warn you twice but to, produce, uh, to prevent factions from forming in my church. And unfortunately, big churches have these because the pastor has gotten himself in a little bit of trouble. He can't shepherd his flock. So you got a group over here and they love Benny Hinn and this group over here thinks Benny Hinn's a heretic and this group over here, these folks are hardcore Calvinists and these folks over here think Calvinists are going to hell. These folks over here are 6,000 year literists. These people over here are eight, you know, eight billion year literalists and you have nothing but factions and the Holy Ghost is like, I can't do much there. I wish somebody would have a clear voice and just declare from the pulpit, we're not a Calvinist church. We don't like Benny Hinn. We're not a 6,000-year literalist, and if that bugs you, go somewhere else. But we're going to have peace here because above all this petty stuff, we focus on the blood of Christ, his atoning work on Calvary, and the believer's authority. And So you end up having 10 churches in one, and everybody's complaining about somebody else. That's why you put them out, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure, verse 11, that such people are warped and sinful. That feels really harsh, Paul. But remember, he's not talking to sheep. He's talking to a pastor. And that encourages pastors to know, you know that sheep you're losing? They're just warped and sinful. Pastor Vaughn used to say, they're not right in their head. You can't, you can't get mad at someone who's retarded. They're retarded. If they weren't retarded, 
I'm talking spiritually, they wouldn't treat you that way. So don't take it personal. They're warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. And that's kind of the end of his teaching. Now he goes on to his greetings. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus, or Tychicus as we'd say it, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me to Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. So Paul's obviously not there yet. He's headed there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. Now that lawyer could either mean a scribe or some suspect maybe he's a Roman and he's a real legal lawyer and Paul knows he's about to be arrested and he needs legal advice. That's another speculation. Or he could be a Jewish convert in which he's a law, a scribe of the law of Moses, in which case he knows the law very well. And either way, Paul needs his help. Help them on their way and see that they have everything they need. That again is he's telling the pastor Titus to take care of these ministers, give them an offering, finance them. Verse 14, our people, is that Jews? Is that Gentiles? Our people, would that just be the born again ones? So then curse to hell all your racial identity. I don't identify with Scottish people. All I got is a Mick on the front of a last name. If it weren't for Mick, they'd think I was straight up English. And even Michael comes from the Hebrew. Come on, we're all, cut us open, we're all the same on the inside. This is so stupid. It's nothing but the devil trying to divide us. Shame on every one of you for having some kind of identity with your past culture and not finding a new identity in Christ. Shame on you for saying those are, I know we joke about, them's my peeps. Well, I love peeps at Easter. We eat them. They're so mushy. I was in my wife's. She's obsessive. I was in her snack drawer today. I was hungry, so I was going to raid my wife. I was, let me preach my story. Stop. There was a cultural issue in Corinthians about the women speaking out of turn. And then Timothy said the same thing. I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to assert authority over the man. For Adam was made first and then the woman. So I was in her drawer, her cabinet, where she keeps the snacks. And I didn't touch your peeps from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. But she has, they have like Halloween peeps now. They look like pumpkins. This woman is touched in that <laughs> she lets the peeps get stale for weeks. So they're hard. Y'all nodding like you're in agreement. Those are my peeps. Uh, that joking aside, Paul says our people, our people. Who is he referring to? The body of Christ. That's, that's the church. That's all there is. It's the church and everybody else is going to hell and they need the gospel. So shame on us for, for being more convinced we're from West Virginia. We're Cubans. Well, I don't know. What are you, Elijah. I don't know either. God help you. Or we're Yankees or, you know, whatever you may be. Shame on you for identifying with that. That identity politics is what creates transgenderism. I identify as what? I identify. We've taken this thing so far. We don't even know how to pee. Do we stand? Do we squat? Do my ankles get wet? Do I sit in a urinal? I identify. Those are the people I, why don't you identify with the body of Christ? except that you're probably maybe not saved because when you are born again, it's easy to identify with anybody who's a blood-bought born-again believer. Those are your peeps. Those are your people. So Paul says, last two verses, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs. That means get a job. If you guys were welfare people, I would nail that every service because welfare denigrates a society. Welfare strips diligence out of people and dignity out of people. Welfare is one of the worst things that was ever unleashed on our country. And any pastor that does not confront a welfare-addicted church is not a good shepherd. Paul said, not welfare, not rainbow push coalition. Paul said, our people should learn to do what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Welfare people, now again, if you're, if you're an invalid, if you have 
uh, workman's comp, if you're truly uh, disabled, that's what the money's for. Take my tax dollars. If you're capable but shiftless, well, we have First and Second Thessalonians that says you can be excommunicated for a church from a church for refusing to get a job. Our people should not live unproductive lives. It's a pretty strong word. Everyone with me sends, your gre- uh, sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And that concludes the third epistle, pastoral epistle. The only one Titus got because that boy didn't need much help. He just needed to be unleashed on a nation. Creed isn't the same way it was 2,000 years ago, though for 700 years it had the same reputation. So something changed. Something took, something, something transformed those people. The gospel and really the message of Titus is you can be different. You can change. You can be different. You can change if you want to. Not everybody wants to. Now, let's deal with this region real quick as we wrap up. This region is known for being lazy. This region is known for not changing. This region, if it were not for outsiders, would be stuck in 1975. Cookville is the nexus hub. Cookville is Mecca. Cookville is the Vegas, New York City, D.C., Atlanta, and Seattle of the Upper Cumberland. And that says not much. You go 10 minutes in any direction, everything industrialized falls off. You can be different if you want. You have to want. The message of Titus is change, change, change. And that God looks at our culture and he hates things about it. And you can't take that personal. All right. So now you see how pastors talk behind the scenes. We come out and we still hug and smile and love and pray and dedicate babies and take your phone calls and pray with you and visit you in the hospital. And secretly we think, if you just listen, you wouldn't have to be this way. So change is possible if you want it. Amen. Amen.